Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars. Sorry, there's a bit in the Bible that's torn here and I can't see the rest of it. (laughs) When I said, thus far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Picked up surprisingly quickly by some people uh, whom I I suspect may have had their own agenda and uh, it spread around the world with the speed that modern technology permits. Unfortunately, improved communication speeds sometimes mean that information can be very quickly distorted, accidentally or deliberately. And so it was that, that this story was picked up by the Daily Mail... Yes, the Daily Mail, hardly known for its journalistic rigour, never mind its academic rigour, where it appeared under the rather more catchy headline, Getting Older Does Not Make You Wiser, Claim Scientists. And here's how the report in the paper began. Uh, It's long been thought that wisdom comes with age, but scientists now claim that having more life experience doesn't necessarily make you more knowledgeable about life. In particular, old age doesn't seem to help people to get an intuitive knack for grasping how others think and behave, researchers claim. Now that's interesting because despite using the phrases knowledgeable about life and grasping how others think and behave, which are in fact the the sort of thing that the researchers were investigating, uh, the Daily Mail chooses, quite erroneously, I think, to lump it all together under the much broader concept of wisdom. Uh, Now, before I'm tempted to say rather patronisingly, as a non-Daily Mail reader, that that's just what you'd expect to find in the Daily Mail, um, I have to admit, uh, as a Times reader, 
Uh, the Times included the same story in almost identical terms in a full-length <laughs> single column on its front page. Both papers reported, and, and again, uh, I'm quoting that in the study, the elderly performed no better than the young in a test of how well they understood human characteristics. Understanding of human characteristics. Yes, that is precisely what the researchers said that they were studying. But is it wisdom? I don't think so. Well, okay, maybe part of it, but only part. So, what is wisdom? And is it true that, in general, wisdom increases with age? That personally, I would argue that it is true, although you might want to argue that I'm biased, uh, uh, or even that I'm living proof that it's not true. So, <laughs> so perhaps I'm, I, won't, I won't pursue that. What, what we really want to know is not what the academics say about wisdom, but what our God wants us to understand about true wisdom, leading to important questions like, have we got it? And if not, how do we get it? And if we have, how do we use it? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that wisdom is what we should be aiming to achieve above everything else. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7 is a wonderful verse, I think, and in, in the NIV it reads, The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Well, that first sentence is rather strange, isn't it? Uh, of course, the beginning of wisdom is to get wisdom. Uh, so in this case, I think I prefer the alternative translation in some older versions, including the King James, uh, which is replicated in the New King James, where it says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And incidentally, uh, I also like the very expressive King James rendering of the second part of the verse where it says and in all you're getting get understanding and also in the, in the previous verse verse 6 we're advised not just to get wisdom but as the new century version puts it to hold on to it but more than that to love it So, what is wisdom? What is it that makes a person wise? What might lead us to say that one person is wise whilst another is not? Well, it's a complicated issue. And one of the reasons for that is because there are basically two kinds of wisdom that might operate in our lives. There's the wisdom of the world and there's the wisdom that comes from God. What the world thinks is wise and what God says is wise can be very, very different. And the result of this almost inevitably is that there's a, a battle going on, a battle for people's hearts and minds, a battle for our hearts and minds. There are two sides, each claiming to have wisdom, each telling us how to make what they would say are wise choices for our lives, and one of the ironies of the situation is that really we, we need wisdom 
to choose between these two forms of wisdom. So we really need some help here. And we shouldn't be surprised, I suppose, to find that the Bible is, is full of sensible advice. Far too much for us to uh, look at all of it today, in fact. So, so where should we start? Well, that letter of James can be a big help here. The, the bit that we read earlier on, chapter 3, verse 13 to 18. Um, what does James have to say there? James identifies the two types of wisdom that are competing for our attention, false wisdom and true wisdom. What are the signs then of false wisdom? What distinguishes it from true wisdom? Interestingly, James describes it this way in verse 14, if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it. False wisdom then, he says, is often exemplified by someone who is self-centred, only concerned about their own wants and desires, self-absorbed. And I suppose we should say that sadly these are often the people that our world reveres. They're the ones who are driven by their ego, driven by their need for success. Frank Sinatra was one such I did it my way, he sang. And yes, I know, he didn't actually write those lyrics, but he sang them, uh, and he meant it, I'm sure. That was his wisdom. But, but that's what someone called graceless wisdom. Graceless in the sense that it lacks any real concern for other people. It doesn't have time for forgiveness, for patience, for kindness. It's too busy, says James, with envy and selfish ambition. So where does this graceless wisdom come from? James explains to us, such wisdom, and uh, uh, modern translators generally put this uh, in, in inverted commas, this wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual. This is the wisdom of the world. It wants nothing to do with God, and more often than not, is opposed to God and his ways. And sadly, this type of wisdom is one that uh, modern society encourages. Look after yourself, it says. Don't let anyone tell you what you should do or shouldn't do. And there's a danger that sometimes we might be tempted to buy into this wisdom too, what we too easily forget because we're only human is that this wisdom is not from God. It is, as James actually says, of the devil. It's harmful to our faith, and we ought to push it away, keep it at arm's length and beyond. But James actually is, uh, is in no mood to dwell on this false and destructive wisdom. Uh, he, he sums it up uh, tersely. It leads, he says, to disorder and every evil practice he can't wait to get on to the more important stuff as he contrasts this false wisdom with the true wisdom so keen is he to talk about true wisdom that he dispenses with a formal definition of what it is and goes straight on to how you might recognize it verse 17 this wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure then peace loving considerate 
submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Wow, what a list that is. This wisdom is not full of bitterness and envy. This wisdom isn't selfish. It's centered on one thing and one thing only. Unlike false wisdom, it's focused on God and his purpose through his son Jesus. True wisdom, writes James, is peace-loving. It isn't interested in the feuding that earthly wisdom often leads to. It aims for harmony, for people to get along. It wants people to work through their differences, to be considerate, to care for each other. This is a wisdom that shows love to everyone, even to its enemies. Isn't that what Jesus taught? James says that it's a a submissive wisdom, which doesn't mean, however, that it bows down to what everyone else says. But it does mean, however, that uh, it recognises that self isn't important. A person who acts according to this wisdom is concerned about serving others and submitting to God's will, he says. This is a wisdom that's full of mercy and good fruit, as James puts it. It's a wisdom that shares the grace of God, a wisdom that knows Jesus as Lord and Saviour. It knows God's love and it knows God wants us to share his love with everyone. Finally, James says that uh, true wisdom is impartial and sincere. This wisdom doesn't need to make sure that everything is in our favour. On the contrary, it's focused on making sure everything is right and just, even if it means that the scales are sometimes tipped against us from from time to time. It's a wisdom that searches out God's will and is determined to act on it regardless of the situation. It's a wisdom full of grace God's grace this is not a wisdom that comes from within us it comes from God it's a wisdom from heaven that comes to us through the Bible through the prophets and especially through the words and actions of Jesus this was not of course a new concept James would be well aware of Old Testament passages that taught where true wisdom came from Take, for instance, uh, Proverbs 9 uh, and verse 10. We saw earlier uh, the slightly puzzling translation that said that the beginning of wisdom is to get wisdom, but uh, Proverbs 9 verse 10 is much plainer. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, that's very significant. So it's important, I think, to understand what is meant by fear in this context. It's not a word uh, that always means the same thing in in the Bible. It has a number of different meanings. It can mean the terror that you might feel in a frightening situation, such as in Deuteronomy 2, where God promised Israel that their enemies would be terrified of them. And in Joshua 24, it seems to describe the respect shown to a master by a servant who serves him faithfully. In other places, uh, like Isaiah 6, verse 5, Fear is the result of standing in awe in the presence of greatness. I think that the the fear of the Lord that leads to wisdom is perhaps a combination of all those aspects. One 
writer defined it as the continual awareness that our loving Heavenly Father is watching and evaluating everything we think and say and do. And he quoted uh, Jesus' words to the churches in Revelation, I know your works. And I think we need to keep that in mind. Uh, yes, of course, God is our, our loving Father, but if we, if we reduce his role to just that of, of a good buddy uh, who exists only to look after us, then we are in danger of, of losing the respectful fear that is, the Bible says, the beginning of true wisdom. When the reality of God's true nature leads us to bow down and to worship, then we are on the path to gaining true wisdom, I think. It comes from always looking to God, worshipping him with our whole being, letting him rule and guide our lives, letting him and his teaching be the central focus of all that we do. This is true wisdom. And the Bible shows us some classic examples that we can aim to emulate What about Job, for instance? Uh, I know that the world uses him as as an example of patience, but I think we should celebrate him for his wisdom. You know what happened to Job? He was a religious man, and he was a rich man with a good life and a large family, and suddenly, disastrously, his world fell apart. So, in the custom of his day, he tore his clothes and shaved his head, And then what did he do? He fell to the ground and he worshipped God with the famous words, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. True wisdom. But, of course, there was worse to come in Job's life. He became very ill with a debilitating skin disease, which was the last straw as far as his wife was concerned. Her less than sympathetic advice was that he should curse God and die. What was his response? Well, uh, after telling her not to be so stupid, he reiterated his position. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? He may not have liked or understood what was happening, but his wisdom, and it must have been true wisdom from above, guided him to take the longer view and to trust in God's way. And if you read the whole book, (coughs) not now, uh, you'll see that in the end he was rewarded for his faith and his wisdom. Of course, if you say to most people, uh, Bible character with wisdom, uh, their reply, if they have one, would probably be Solomon. And there's a lot to learn from Solomon's life, but... uh, I'd actually like to home in on one aspect, or two maybe, uh, which helped to answer a couple of questions that I posed earlier on. One of them was, how do you get wisdom? The right kind of wisdom, that is. Simple question, and if you look at Solomon, you'll see that there is a simple answer. How do you get wisdom? You ask God for it. Solomon did just that. And he got his wish. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Well, yes and no. You'll recall that because Solomon asked God for wisdom rather than riches, God gave him riches as well as wisdom. And thereby hangs a tale 
or rather a salutary lesson for us. The record of Solomon's subsequent life includes some extraordinary acts of wisdom, but also, shall we say, some less than wise choices, which in a way provides the answer to that other question, what should we do with wisdom when we've got it? The answer is that it's still up to us to apply this wisdom in a world that continues to tempt us into difficult circumstances. God doesn't grant us wisdom and then place us in a world where we're protected from the need to use it. Of course not. But he will continue to guide us towards wise paths, I'm sure, if we continue to ask him. We can't finish these thoughts without a mention of uh, one more Bible character, one for whom true wisdom was second nature. Jesus, of course. There's so much we could say, so it's necessary to pick out a couple of things to illustrate our theme. I want to focus on a couple of Jesus' parables which specifically illustrate the contrast between those who are wise and those who are not. And that in itself makes them worth looking at, but they're particularly important, I think, because they relate to the behaviour of people who claim to be followers of Jesus, but whose lack of true wisdom seems to cause them to be excluded. And that's very sobering. In uh, Matthew chapter 7, from verse 21, we read of people who claim to be disciples. Uh, Did we not do this and that in your name, they said? Only for Jesus to say, I never knew you. explaining that not everyone who says Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom but only those who are truly doing God's will these are the ones who show that they have got true wisdom how do we know? Uh, well read on to verse 24 therefore he says ensuring that we know that he's continuing with the same scenario and then he tells the famous parable of the two house builders the wise man who built on solid rock and the foolish one who built on shifting sands. Notice that in the explanation, both the characters hear the message of Jesus, both learn how to behave as Christians, but only one of them is described as being wise, the one who puts the teaching of Jesus into practice. And that's not the only time when Jesus uh, made that point in, uh, in a parable have a look at sometime at the beginning of Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. The situation here is just the same. It's a message about people who all are or claim to be followers of Jesus looking for his return. It's not about some who are followers and some who are not. It is, of course, a parable about the return of Jesus. We know it is because it's, uh, it's part of that section of the gospel where Jesus answers the disciples' question in chapter 24 when will this be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age and in the parable ten virgins perhaps bridesmaids are waiting long into the evening to welcome the bridegroom when he arrives ahead of his marriage the symbolism is obvious and you know the story well five other ladies described as foolish were not well enough prepared they had lamps but hadn't taken any oil 
perhaps implying that they weren't fully convinced of what they were doing. The other five, the wise ones, had brought oil for their lamps and were ready and able to greet the bridegroom when he arrived in the hours of darkness. Whilst the others scattered to try and buy some oil at midnight and got back too late to join the celebrations. They had asked the wise ones for a share of their oil, but the strong message here is that personal preparedness for the Lord's return is not something you can borrow from somebody else. Well, there are a number of ways to interpret the the detail of the parable, but I want to stress again that the sobering point is that both the wise and the foolish were among those who set out to wait for the bridegroom. So I'd like to just finish with a a few words from Jesus' most basic, perhaps best-known teaching, so-called Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, Verse 8, for they will see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Now, does that ring any bells from earlier on? Cast your mind back to James chapter 3, which is more or less where we started, or having a look at it later, and you'll see that James' list of the fruits of true wisdom is pretty much the same as the characteristics of the blessed in Matthew chapter 5 which is hardly surprising I suppose so uh, here's a motto to to summarise it all if you want to be blessed get wisdom wisdom